coming to you from the Motor City. This week on Detroit's Daily Docket, drugs complicate everything. We've already discussed the opioid crisis, but now we're going deeper. The doctors will talk about basic types of drugs, the difficulties with deaths involving multiple drugs, and common post-mortem misconceptions. You'll also get to hear from a few of our autopsy technicians and learn more about their jobs. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Lachman Sung, and you are joining us for Episode 6 of Detroit's Daily Docket. Today's episode is something we've called Drugs Complicate Everything. And as it is, there's so many combinations of drugs that ultimately results in the death of an individual. Today, we're going to have Drs. Reyes and Lavity go over some of those aspects and complications. Thanks for the introduction, Dr. Sung. As we have previously mentioned and will likely mention again, there is a drug epidemic in the U.S. right now, with the CDC reporting over 70,000 deaths due to drugs in 2017. Our office had 940 drug deaths in 2017. This is an epidemic that is hitting every corner of the country, and since it has touched a lot of families and friend circles, it deserves more attention. Although some may view these drug deaths as open and shut cases, an all-too-frequent consequence in drug deaths is that families cannot get the answers they seek and ultimately closure in these cases. They want to understand what their loved one's final moments were like from those who were with them, only to get no response or shifting or conflicting versions of events. Often, items like money and phones go missing with no explanation. Whether these individuals were too intoxicated to remember the events clearly or are lying to cover up their own crimes is unknown. But it leaves families upset and frustrated and believing that foul play is being covered up. Families exhaust all options with the police and end up repeatedly calling the medical examiner's office because they are the only ones giving them any answers. So let's start with defining cause, mechanism, and manner of death as it relates to drug deaths and cover some basics of post-mortem toxicology testing. So, uh, cause of death is the drug or drugs that resulted in death. Frequently, there is a mixture of drugs that resulted in death. And these are certified with all the drugs listed individually, only up to three drugs listed, or simply as mixed drug toxicity on the death certificate. Terms like toxicity, intoxication, and abuse are used interchangeably for certification purposes. But what about the term overdose? The term overdose may be used if a drug level is exceedingly high, but in general it's not used because the vast majority of drug deaths are not dose-dependent, meaning people can die with any level in their system. The mechanism of death is physiologic derangement in the body through which the drugs bring about death. Common mechanisms are respiratory or central nervous system depression and cessation, or heart arrhythmia. Now, a lot of death certificates list cardiopulmonary arrest as the cause of death. Is this correct? Well, cardiopulmonary arrest literally means your heart and lungs have stopped, and it is commonly listed on death certificates completed by non-pathologists as the cause of death. It is actually a mechanism of death. What is manner of death? Manner of death is the circumstances around which the death occurred. It is determined for statistical purposes only so that your state can compile death rates and it is not meant to impart any legal significance, meaning that although a drug death may be ruled accidental, that does not mean that a drug dealer will not be prosecuted for a crime. For drug deaths, most are ruled accidental, meaning that the individual used drugs to get high and death was not the intended or expected outcome of that act. How about suicides and homicides? Suicides uh, due to drugs are those in which death was expected by the individual 
and they need some evidence of intent through medical and psychiatric history, previous attempt, communicating the intent, and or exceeding high levels of drugs that go beyond those typically seen with recreational drug use. Homicides are rare and involve drugs forced into a person against their will, and they need clear evidence of this act by another person. Now let's talk about some misconceptions about postmortem toxicology. So toxicology testing in postmortem specimens is different than testing done in the hospital or for legal reasons in living people. Some of these differences are in how the testing is done, but some are in how the testing can be interpreted. Common misconceptions include that drug deaths are dose-dependent or are overdoses. Most drug deaths, in fact, are not dose-dependent, and deaths can occur over a wide range of values. And drugs with similar mechanisms, like opioids, for example, can act together and bring about death, whereas individually they would not. That we can tell you the amount of drugs taken, the form in which they were taken, and when they were last taken. Yes, drugs have a known half-life, which is the time it takes for one half of the drugs to leave your system. And based on the half-life, we roughly know the outer limit for when a drug was taken. But this estimate varies based on which form the drug was taken and other metabolic factors, which are things we generally do not know. We cannot take a drug level and do some back calculations to know the form or amount taken and over which period of time. That we need to test stomach contents or drugs found at a scene to determine the cause or manner of death. What determines if a drug caused or contributed to death is the level in your bloodstream and not in your stomach. Now let's talk about heroin. As we discussed in episode 2, in 2017, there were over 15,000 deaths in the U.S. and 371 deaths in our office involving heroin. Heroin is also known as diacetylmorphine and is an opiate-derived morphine from the opium puppy plant. It is highly addictive and can produce intense feelings of euphoria. It can be injected, snorted, or smoked. Past misuse of prescription opioids is the strongest risk factor for starting heroin use. Heroin is 100 times more potent than morphine. It is fast-acting and within a matter of minutes is metabolized to 6-monoacetylmorphine, which in turn is metabolized within minutes to morphine. Morphine can remain in your system for about 8 to 16 hours. Because heroin is in your system for such a short time, labs test for 6-monoacetylmorphine or 6-acetylmorphine along with morphine in order to detect deaths due to heroin. What is the mechanism of death in heroin cases? Heroin brings about death through respiratory failure. It classically causes respiratory depression, reduced level of consciousness, coma, and pinpoint pupils, cyanosis or turning blue, low blood pressure, slow heart rate, and low body temperature can also occur. Heroin is frequently taken with other drugs, and when multiple opioids or drugs with similar central nervous system and respiratory depression are taken, they all act together to bring about death. We do not know if death would have occurred if heroin was used alone, but when mixed with other central nervous system or respiratory depressants, death is inevitable. Let's examine some famous deaths involving heroin and start with Corey Monteith. Corey Monteith was a Canadian actor, singer, and musician best known for his role in Glee. He was 31 years old at the time of his death in 2013. He had a history of drug abuse. He was found dead in his hotel room in Vancouver, British Columbia, and was pronounced dead at the scene without CPR efforts. 
The coroner's report found no injuries or diseases. His toxicology report revealed a blood alcohol level of 0.13% and morphine and 6-monoacetyl morphine from heroin in his blood. Alcohol and heroin are both central nervous system and respiratory depressants, and drinking amplifies these effects of heroin. His death was certified as an accidental heroin and alcohol toxicity. Next, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman was an American actor, director, and producer, and was 46 years old at the time of his death in 2014. He had a history of drug abuse with a recent relapse, and he was found dead in the bathroom of his New York City apartment with a syringe in his arm and packets of drugs nearby. The New York medical examiner issued a statement that said he died from an acute mixed drug toxicity that included heroin, cocaine, benzodiazepines, and amphetamines. It was noted that the heroin did not contain fentanyl. This is an example of drugs with different effects being taken together. Heroin and, to some extent, benzos have a depressant effect, while cocaine and amphetamines have a stimulant effect. While the behavioral effects of these drugs may balance each other out, the effects to your brain and heart are amplified and result in your heart stopping. Chronic opioid usage can cause diseases or worsen existing diseases. Chronic injection of drugs can result in vascular and heart infections and chronic lung disease. And repeated or prolonged episodes of respiratory depression can lead to pneumonia. Let's examine some cases where drug usage and diseases intersect and start with Corey Haim. Corey Haim was a Canadian actor who is best known for his movies as a child and teenage star. He was 38 years old at the time of his death in 2010. He had a history of prescription pill abuse, heart disease, and a recent fever and cough. He had a witness collapse in front of his mother in his home in Los Angeles, and he was pronounced dead in the emergency room. What did his autopsy find? For being only 38 years old, autopsy found evidence of several significant diseases. His heart was enlarged. The wall of his heart was thickened due to high blood pressure, and he had significant, meaning 50 to 75 percent blockage, of one major coronary artery. His kidneys had scarring typical of high blood pressure. His lungs were very heavy. Besides edema fluid in his lungs, the lungs were consolidated, which means that the color and the consistency of the lung tissue was not normal. Normally, lungs are red and spongy, but when there is an infection, the lung tissue is firmer than usual and appears more tan in color. His lungs were examined under the microscope, and they revealed the features of a severe infection or pneumonia. A microbiology workup ruled out the flu or influenza as the cause and determined the pneumonia to be caused by a common bacteria, which in medical speak is frequently called community-acquired pneumonia. What did his toxicology show? His toxicology report revealed a lot of drugs in his system. He had dextromorphan, which is cough syrup, diphenhydramine or Benadryl, which is an antihistamine, fluoxetine or Prozac, which is an antidepressant, olanzapine or Zyprexa, which is an antipsychotic, diazepam or Valium, which is an anti-anxiety, carisoprolol or Soma, which is a muscle relaxant, and ibuprofen. All of these drugs were at low or therapeutic levels, and they didn't acutely contribute to death. What does that mean? It means that he didn't die from a drug overdose or from a drug interaction. However, chronic use of drugs, such as those with central nervous system or respiratory depressant actions, can predispose one to infections, particularly in the lungs. Now, there was a rumored history of heavier drug abuse, such as cocaine, but neither it nor its breakdown products were detected in his system. His heart disease was very significant for a 38-year-old, and that could be explained either by a family history of such or by prior cocaine usage. Next, Brittany Murphy and her husband, uh, Simon Monjack. Brittany Murphy was an American actress who was best known locally for playing Eminem's wife in the movie 8 Mile. She was 38 years old at the time of her death in 2009. She had a history of diabetes and recent shortness of breath and abdominal pain. She was found unresponsive on the bathroom floor of her home in Los Angeles and was pronounced dead in the hospital about one and a half hours later. 
Blood work taken before she was pronounced dead in the hospital indicated anemia or a low red blood cell count. What did the autopsy show? Her autopsy showed heavy lungs that were consolidated and showed the microscopic features of a severe acute infection or pneumonia. A microbiology workup again ruled out the flu or influenza as the cause and determined the pneumonia to be caused by a common bacteria and her cause of death was ruled community-acquired pneumonia. What did her toxicology show? Despite rumors, there was no reported history of drug abuse. Yet, her toxicology results revealed 11 drugs in her system. These included hydrocodone or Vicodin, chlorpheniramine, which is an antihistamine, L-methamphetamine from an inhaler, propanolol or indorol, which is a high blood pressure medication also used to treat tremors and migraines, chlordiazepoxide, a benzo commonly used to treat alcohol withdrawal syndrome, lorazepam or Ativan, which is an anti-anxiety drug, dextromorphan from cough syrup, fluoxetine, diazepam, Tylenol, and ibuprofen. That's quite a number of drugs. Yes, it's a mixture of a lot of different types of drugs, and each were at concentrations that were not high, but in combination can predispose to lung infections, again because of that central nervous system and respiratory depressant effects. Multiple drug intoxication thus contributed to the death, and the death was ruled accidental due to the contribution of the drugs. She was married at the time of her death to Simon Monjack. Simon Monjack was a British screenwriter, director, and producer. He had a history of unspecified heart disease, seizures from a previous fall, and multiple bouts of pneumonia with recent flu-like symptoms. He was 40 years old at the time of his death in 2010. He was found unresponsive in his bed in his home in Los Angeles and was pronounced dead at the scene about five months after Brittany died. What about his autopsy and toxicology findings? His autopsy revealed an enlarged heart with dilated chambers and focal scarring in the heart muscle, an absent right kidney, obesity, and heavy lungs with the microscopic features of a severe infection or pneumonia. Like his wife, the microbiology workup revealed the pneumonia to be caused by a common bacteria and his cause of death was ruled community-acquired pneumonia. His toxicology, like hers, was positive for multiple drugs. These included three antidepressants, two anti-anxiety medications, three pain medications, including Vicodin, and a high blood pressure medication. The level of the drugs in his system, particularly the Vicodin, was not as high as what was in Brittany's system, and these drugs were not felt to have played a part in Simon's death, which was ultimately ruled natural. It makes you wonder, given the similar talks and similar autopsy findings with regards to pneumonia, if Simon's death could have been prevented. Now let's move on to cocaine. It's making a comeback. In 2017, there were 14,000 deaths in the U.S. involving cocaine. Our office had 341 deaths. States with the largest increases in deaths were Washington, D.C., and Ohio. Cocaine is a stimulant drug created from the paste extracted from the coca plant leaves. It is highly addictive and can produce feelings of invincibility, increased levels of energy and alertness, and euphoria. It can be injected, smoked, or snorted. Cocaine is fast-acting and can remain in your system for up to four hours. It is metabolized mostly to benzoylognine, which can remain in your system for up to 24 hours. Labs routinely test for cocaine breakdown products in addition to cocaine itself, as its presence helps give a timeline for cocaine usage. What is the mechanism of death in cocaine cases? Cocaine brings about death through either a heart arrhythmia or seizures. It classically causes increased heart rate and body temperature, sweating, large pupils, hallucinations, and tremors. It is frequently taken with other drugs either to enhance or counteract the effects of cocaine. Let's examine some famous deaths involving cocaine and look at Mac Miller again. We are coming back to Mac Miller, 
the musician who died in 2018 at age 26, that we first talked about in Episode 2 and Opioid Deaths. His toxicology performed on peripheral blood samples was not only positive for fentanyl, but also alcohol and cocaine. And when you drink alcohol while using cocaine, a unique breakdown product called cocaethylene is produced in your body. So is cocaethylene important? Cocaethylene has behavioral and physiologic effects on its own, and it is thought to be more toxic to the heart than cocaine itself and carries an up to 25% increase over cocaine alone in the risk of immediate death. So alcohol and cocaine do not mix. Now let's look at Scott Weiland. Scott Weiland was an American musician, singer, and songwriter who was best known as the lead singer for the band Stone Temple Pilots. He was 48 years old at the time of his death in 2015. He had a history of drug abuse and was found dead on his tour bus in Minnesota. The Minneapolis medical examiner released a press release indicating that his toxicology revealed cocaine, alcohol, and methylene dioxyamphetamine, known as MDA, in his system. MDA is a designer drug with psychedelic and stimulant effects, and it is not ecstasy. Ecstasy is known as MDMA, but it is a known breakdown product of ecstasy. What does that mean? Ecstasy is metabolized by your body to MDA before it is eliminated from your system. So it means that Scott could have been abusing either MDA or ecstasy. We know that alcohol and cocaine do not mix, and we know that cocaine and other stimulants such as MDA can increase each other's effects. The press release also mentioned arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or coronary artery disease, which is well known to be caused by stimulant usage. Accused cocaine uh, can cause death due to its cardiovascular effects, such as heart attacks and strokes. Chronic use can cause cardiovascular disease, including coronary artery disease, heart attacks, strokes, high blood pressure, and result in death from these effects without any cocaine being present in the system. These cardiovascular effects are not reversible and can result in death years after usage stops. An example of these chronic effects is Marilyn Taylor, a.k.a. Chambers. Marilyn Chambers was an American pornographic actress who was 56 years old at the time of her death in 2009. She had a history of past cocaine abuse and ongoing alcohol and prescription pill abuse, and she was found dead on the living room floor of her mobile home in Los Angeles. Her autopsy revealed bleeding on the brain due to a ruptured berry aneurysm. The blood vessels at the base of your brain can develop abnormal outpouchings called aneurysms, and these aneurysms can rupture and cause fatal bleeding on the brain. Chronic cocaine abuse and resulting high blood pressure are well known to result in both the development of these outpouchings and their rupture, resulting in deaths year after the drug use stopped. Now let's discuss the pill cocktail. So when multiple prescription and over-the-counter pills are taken, the potential for interaction and death is high. These pill cocktails frequently include painkillers, antidepressants, and anti-anxiety medications, and often require escalating doses and new additions to the cocktail to achieve the desired effects. These prescriptions are often obtained from multiple persons with little oversight or knowledge of other scripts, and their combined depressant and or stimulant effects are what results in death. An example of a person who used such a cocktail is Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger was an Australian actor best known for his posthumous Oscar for his portrayal of the Joker in the movie The Dark Knight. He was 28 years old at the time of his death in 2008. He had a history of increasing difficulty in sleeping. He was found dead in bed in his New York City loft by his housekeeper and masseuse. He was pronounced dead at the scene after CPR efforts. The New York Medical Examiner released a press release stating that multiple drugs were found in his system and their combined effects were what caused his death. These drugs include oxycodone, which is a prescription opiate, temazepam or restoral, which is a prescription hypnotic sleep aid, doxylamine or unisom, which is an antihistamine used as a sleep aid, hydrocodone, alprazolam, and diazepam. 
Although the exact concentrations were not made public, the combination of two opiates and four other drugs with known central nervous system depressant effects is a lethal combination, and his death was ruled an accidental drug overdose. Another example is Anna Nicole Smith. Vicki Lynn Marshall, a.k.a. Anna Nicole Smith, was an American model and actress. Her adult son died of a drug overdose while visiting her in the hospital upon the birth of her daughter in 2006. Now, she was 39 years old when she was found dead in her Florida hotel room in 2007. Her autopsy revealed an abscess in the left buttock and multiple areas of fat necrosis in both buttocks attributed to repeated injections of medications. Her toxicology revealed multiple drugs in her blood. Chloral hydrate, which is not a well-known or often prescribed sedative or hypnotic. Topiramate or Topamax, which is used to treat seizures and migraines. Clonazepam or Clonopin, an anti-anxiety drug. Valium. Oxazepam, which is used for anti-anxiety and alcohol withdrawal. Ativan, diphenhydramine, and acetaminophen. Now, this is another example of a lethal combination of several depressant drugs, although the level of chloral hydrate in her system was at a toxic or lethal amount by itself. Interesting, it is reported that Anna Nicole did not have prescriptions for any of the drugs found in her system. Intoxications can place one in a situation or environment that one cannot extricate themselves from. These are deaths that are not necessarily due to the drugs themselves, but happen because the person gets into a physical situation that they cannot extricate themselves from because of their level of intoxication. Drug intoxications frequently result in drownings, whether it's large bodies of water or bathtubs. A classic example of this is Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston was an American singer, songwriter, and actress. She was 48 years old at the time of her death in 2012. She had a history of drug abuse, particularly cocaine and crack cocaine abuse. What is crack cocaine? Crack cocaine is a freebase form of cocaine that can be smoked, and it has a quicker and more intense high than cocaine. It also has a higher potential for addiction, and it can cause chronic lung problems from it being smoked, along with cardiovascular effects. Whitney was staying at a hotel to prepare for a pre-Grammy award party, and she was found face down in a bathtub filled with hot water by her personal assistant. She was pronounced dead at the scene. What did the autopsy find? Autopsy revealed abrasions on the front of her body consistent with her position when found and skin slipping from the body due to the water's warm temperature. She had a perforated nasal septum, a common finding in people who chronically snort drugs, She also had one vessel, coronary artery disease, in her heart and emphysema in her lungs, both of which would be expected in someone with a history of abusing cocaine and, in particular, crack cocaine. What about her toxicology? Her toxicology revealed multiple drugs in her blood, cocaine and its breakdown products, cyclobenzaprine or flexoral, which is a muscle relaxant, Benadryl, Xanax, ibuprofen, and the breakdown products of marijuana. Now, cocaine-related deaths are not dose-dependent, so it is possible that this combination of drugs in her system may have resulted in her death anyways, even if she was not in a bathtub. But this combination of drugs while taking a hot bath prevented her from safely bathing and exiting the tub and resulted in her drowning in the water. Her cause of death was drowning, with her heart disease and cocaine use listed as contributing to the death, and the manner of death was ruled accident. Drug intoxications can also result in deaths from exposure to cold temperatures. An example of this is Kanika Jenkins. Kanika Jenkins was 19 years old at the time of her death in 2017 in Chicago. She was partying in a Chicago hotel room when she went missing. There was video that showed her staggering around and entering the kitchen of the hotel alone. She was found dead nearly one day later in the freezer side of a dual walk-in cooler freezer unit in an unused portion of the kitchen. What were her autopsy and toxicology findings? Autopsy revealed a small abrasion on her right ankle and a small bruise on her right leg. No diseases and no other injuries were present. 
toxicology performed on her blood revealed a blood alcohol level of 0.112%. She also had topiramate or topamax in her system, which again is a drug prescribed for epilepsy and migraines. And this drug was at a therapeutic level in her system. Now, she was not known to be taking this medication, and it is presumed by her age to not be an experienced drinker. This combination of alcohol and topamax can result in increased sleepiness, impaired memory and judgment and concentration, confusion, and poor coordination. Her cause of death was hypothermia, which is low body temperature, and the drug combination contributed to her accidental death by resulting in this 19-year-old not being able to extricate herself from a walk-in freezer that she happened to have mistakenly entered. If you've been following us, by now you've heard interviews with our PAs, clerical staff, photographers, and investigators. Now I'm going to turn your attention to our autopsy technicians, or autopsy techs for short. The responsibilities and duties of an autopsy tech varies greatly from office to office. I'm going to detail what our autopsy techs do, but just be aware that this may not be the same for other offices. Here in this office, things are designed to maximize efficiency and improve workflow. I've mentioned in the past that we don't work on cases sequentially. What I mean is that we don't complete a case from start to finish, such as the external examination, evisceration, dissection, and closing of a body, and then move on to another case. Instead, we work on cases concurrently, where we may have five, six, seven, or more bodies open in various stages of the autopsy. In order for us to do that, we have team members that are highly skilled in doing specific tasks. For example, we have our photographers like Kelly and Sierra who handle taking the pictures. Could I take the pictures? Sure, I could, but they wouldn't be nearly as good and it would take a lot longer, which in turn delays everything else. Regarding the autopsy, can I eviscerate, dissect the organ blocks, sew up and clean up a body? Once again, yes, I could, but if I was to do all that, the whole process would come to a grinding halt. So instead, we have autopsy technicians who are infinitely faster than I am, eviscerate the body, and remove the brain. And when we are finished dissecting the organs, the autopsy techs place the organs back into the body, sew it up, and prepare it for release to funeral homes. That way, while I'm dissecting one organ block, the autopsy technicians can be eviscerating another body. After the autopsies have been completed, the autopsy techs clean and stock the autopsy room and prep it for the next day. Because we are a 365, or in the case of 2020, a 366 day a year operation, there's always going to be tomorrow and there's always going to be more bodies. So they are responsible for making sure everything is ready for that next day. They also release bodies to funeral homes. They perform inventory on the decedents that are still in the office. And they also release materials to the police with attention to maintaining chain of custody. These are just some of the things that the autopsy techs do. So that you can put a voice to the job, I've invited two of our autopsy techs to talk with us. Let's start with Chelsea. Chelsea, can you please introduce yourself and tell us how it is that you came here to be with us? Um, my name is Chelsea Camerata, and I've been working at University of Michigan for since 2007. I was working in the Department of Patient Transportations, which means I was taking inpatients to tests like CAT scan, ultrasound, and MRI. Um, I did that for 12 years. I really liked the department, but uh, I just kind of needed a change. Um, when I start, first started considering the job as an autopsy tech, I wasn't really sure if I could do it, just because... The violence that we see is, it is pretty extraordinary, and so I wasn't sure if I'd be able to handle it. Um, my first day as orientation was actually a pretty exciting day. We had a, a suicide, a homicide, a few overdoses, and so I really got to see some pretty interesting stuff that first day. The first time I saw the autopsy, I actually watched Eugene do the Y incision, and uh, that actually made my stomach really flip. And um, uh, I wasn't really sure if I could handle it, but then I was like, you know what, I really just want to try something new. And so 
you know, I, I just did it. And before I started, I actually didn't have, uh, I've never even had an anatomy class. And so when I showed up, like I, I had a vague notion of which organs did what and where they were located. But uh, yeah, it was like a quite an ed- education. So, um, and then like um, psychologically, when you first start working with death in that capacity, I really feel like in this last year, uh, my perspective of death has completely changed. Um, it, it's almost impossible to not have this career kind of change how you um, experience that sort of thing, I guess. That's not something that everybody has any exposure to, that you can't know until you're actually doing it. You, know, you can see it on TV, you can right. see them do an autopsy, but when you're actually taking a scalpel to someone's skin, that's a completely different experience. Right, right. Yeah, it's... Um, I do love this job, though. Um, even though I started, like, really scared and kind of uncomfortable with the whole thing, um, the people that we work with are just so awesome. They're really uh, smart, funny, kind individuals. Um, and we're so helpful. And, um, you know, if you're having a problem with something, people are so willing to help you out and explain what's going on. You know, um, if you have a question or something. For someone who is interested in becoming an autopsy technician, what would you tell them? What would you say to them? I really think the most important thing is um, to, like, be kind of fearless about what you're getting into, you know? Um, I think it takes a lot of courage to get involved in this profession, but you're just going to learn so much and you're going to get to experience so much. What do you look for in a tech? One of the hardest things is finding the right person that works in our team things are busy Mm -hmm. down in the autopsy room and we need to function smoothly to get everything done. If you have a personality that just doesn't gel with everybody else, it's not that it's necessarily a bad thing. It just makes it a little bit more difficult. Right. So uh, if your personality works with all the other autopsy technicians, other physicians, it makes things so much more smooth. Yeah, definitely. So we're looking for that. Someone who's ambitious, someone who has the self-motivation to learn about the autopsy procedure. Sure. I mean, we can teach you where to cut, but if that's all you ever do, mm-hmm. then you, you yourself, you're not going to grow. Right. So we want someone who, who's interested in what we do, interested in helping out. Now, those are all very, very important things. And it's not a specific thing that I look for when we're trying to hire an autopsy technician, but for me, I, I find those very, very valuable. Yeah, I think being self-motivated is super helpful just because um, we really are helping each other out. I honestly don't think I've ever worked in an environment that was more uh, teamwork-oriented, except maybe um, when I would have to transport patients from, like, an ICU unit. Those units are always very, like, you know, what do you need? How can I help you? Um, and that's what I really liked about this is, like, how how helpful we are to each other. It really also makes the day just go by so much smoother when people, when it's, like, all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that you've been here in our office for a little while, do you have any experiences or things that really stood out to you, some highlights of what you've been doing? Well, I was uh, on midnights <laughs> for 12 years, and so uh, not being on midnights is a serious highlight for me. Like, I, it was like two nights ago, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was like, oh, it's so nice, I can go back to sleep. <laughs> I'll never take sleeping at night for granted for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's something that people actually don't know. There are offices that work you know, late into the afternoon as far as performing autopsies. Sure. Our office is very front-weighted as far as the autopsy room goes. So for the most part, it's you prep the bodies, rounds start at 8.30, and then from there to noonish time or so, that's when everything is starting to wrap up. If a body comes in in the afternoon, we are not going to perform the autopsy until the following day. Right. So that is a little different. How is it? Why is it different here? Is it just like you guys, your preference or... Well, for the operations of the office particularly, see, we've been talking a little uh, little bit about the autopsy, actually a lot about the autopsy, but your job doesn't stop there because you have to release bodies in the afternoon. Correct. Yeah, from roughly around noon to four or five. Right. So if you are tied up in the autopsy room, well, who's going to release bodies? Yeah. We need somebody to do that. So it's just how we've designed the workflow to work best with uh, our autopsy room our county because there's a lot of funeral homes in the area and there's a lot of people coming. So we need dedicated time 
where we have the autopsy technicians able and available to release those bodies. Okay, that makes sense. Can I ask you, um, is the, the word block for removing the organ, is that just our term or is that like a kind of universal term? It's a well-used term in pathology. Okay. There's organ blocks or compartments in the body. We use the what is known as the unmass evisceration. It's the luteal method. There's many different methods for evisceration of the internal organs. So we use the luteal where we take everything from essentially the tongue down to the rectum. All of it comes out in one unit or mm-hmm. one block. Okay. It's an unmass block. Now, there are other techniques that remove, let's say, just the heart and lung. So mm-hmm. that is the cardiovascular block. I see. Or they might take the abdominal block where it's just the bowel, the stomach, and those organs below the diaphragm. So those are different compartments or different blocks. We just remove all of it at once, which is also different depending on what office you work with. And then do we do that just because it's more thorough? Like, what was the reason? Yeah, every method has their pluses and minuses. And Mm -hmm. I'm not here to say ours is the best or ours is the worst or anything of that nature. It, uh, I have my own preferences and I think our luteal method works pretty well Mm -hmm. because I like to see the association of the organs with everything else. Some offices take organs out individually, but I like to see all of the organs next to each other. So I can see if there's a wound track going through organ A, B, C, and D, how it's going to line up in as it would have in the body. Right. So, uh, like I said, it's not better or worse. It's just different. It's just how we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Anything else, Chelsea? Um, you know what's really cool about this job is um, I really feel like the work that I do kind of contributes to society in a way that I've never really felt before at work. Um, I really like my role in helping families and victims see justice or at least get an explanation for their deaths. And um, I just really like being part of that. It feels kind of important, Mm -hmm. you know. Someone might question you and say, well, you're just dealing with the dead. That's not really true. Mm -hmm. You're dealing, yes, absolutely, you're dealing with the dead, but there's those families that, and this is somebody's loved one. It's not just a dead body somewhere. This Definitely. is this was somebody. Yeah. You know, um, Dr. Webb told me one day, he was like, um, you know, like, you got to think of these people as, you know, the, the person somebody most loves in the world. And when you approach each case that way, um, it's much better. You know what I mean? It's just, it's... Um, it's really, it's really important to remember that these are people with family and friends and um, they deserve all the respect and dignity that, that affords. I agree. Well, thank you, Chelsea, for coming on with me. I think I had a great time. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking to me. Hope we can do it again sometime. Yes, of course. <laughs> thank you. Yep. Okay, we're back on the air, and we just got done talking with Chelsea. Now we have Elise Denoyer. And Elise, can you just introduce yourself and tell us what you do? So my name is Elise. I am an autopsy attendant here. Uh, we generally just call ourselves techs. I'm one of the lead techs, and generally that just means helping with the autopsies and then any sort of extras like uh, paperwork and record keeping specifically for us to kind of, if anyone needs to know something, we have a record of it that's easy to access. Now just like Chelsea, you perform the autopsies where you take out all the organs, the brain. You also sew up the bodies prepared for release to funeral homes. But what you're talking to me now is some additional duties. Can you describe a little bit more in detail what the record keeping and why that's important? So whenever, um, like the police departments, they require uh, certain pieces of evidence and we're the ones that collect that usually. And like I said, a chain of custody so that we know what was taken, when it was taken, who collected it, and then when it was released and who it was released to. Not only uh, the the department or and where they took it to. Uh, Also, we have body inventory because not everyone leaves the same day that they come in. So we have to keep record of that where they are. So if there's uh, someone who needs to be picked up after hours, we have someone who isn't regularly in our coolers be able to access and find who they need to be released or if they need to gather more evidence off of them. Uh, Sometimes we'll have Michigan State Police, they'll come in and take DNA after the fact. 
that happens pretty frequently. So they'll take sometimes, you know, whole organs or they'll take bone parts. Uh, it just kind of depends. And just like you said, not everybody that comes into our office leaves immediately. We have different refrigerators, but we also have some freezers. Yes, we have freezers. And uh, the freezers are usually for, because uh, we have bones that come in. So our bones will go into the freezers, as well as uh, if someone wasn't found immediately after death, they'll go into freezers, and anyone who's going to be here like long-term goes into freezers. When you mean long-term, how long-term are we talking? Generally, we have people here, if they're going to be released to a funeral home, it's within the first week. But there are times where we have people that actually don't go to a funeral home and they have to go to indigent cremation and those ones date back to last year and some even for, till until uh, 2017. Hmm, that's quite a while. Yes. <laughs> All right. The freezing process helps really slow down the decomposition mm-hmm. of the body mm-hmm. and if we didn't have that it'd be entirely different building. <laughs> yeah they definitely they keep everything from uh, well during breakdown uh everything turns to liquid and it can get messy so having the freezers available really helps that as far as indigent burial Mm -hmm. uh, how frequent is that and why is it that some people go that route Mm -hmm. uh usually that's when families just don't have the money funerals are expensive and there aren't too many indigent burials as of now most of them they're all cremations and uh there's a funeral home that we work with who does a lot of this pro bono they do it um just to help help us out. And uh, it's actually one of our investigators that does a lot of the work on this. He, he sends out a list and then whatever gets approved, he gives that list to us. And then the day before, we'll pull all of those. And then the morning of the day they get cremated, we will have, they'll have boxes and cremation, like I said, cremation boxes for them. And they get picked up and they get taken to the crematorium. And we've had as little as 10 go in a month and as many as 30 go in a month. Now, being one of the lead autopsy technicians, what are some of the challenges that you've seen and had to encounter? Well, I feel like a lot of the lead job is finding things. I can't tell how many times we need histology cassettes, uh, numbers found, because it's something from 2013 that they want to get additional cassettes for or new cassettes for, just new slices for. Um, Things like, again, bodies, finding those. And we have, we can have upwards of, you know, 250, you know, bodies here. At times, right now, we're not that many, but we have had that many. And so trying to find all of that, you know, finding one in 200, uh, looking for that bit of information. When Elise is describing, you know, finding bodies in the coolers, it's not that we lost them. Oh, no. (laughs) There's a lot of them. Yeah, Yeah. Mm there is because we have uh, four coolers and two freezers that we keep everybody in. And inventory is done once a week or as needed. And so and if they're on trays, the trays, that's usually the most difficult part is when they're on trays because the trays get pulled out. We need to get somebody off, a, off of a rack. Then those trays get pulled out, but they don't necessarily get put back in that same cooler. They could get put in one of the four. So then trying to find that one tray in one of those four coolers. When there's a lot happening, it can get kind of confusing, but mm-hmm. usually it doesn't take more than like five minutes. No, they're here. It just... You can right. find them. <laughs> I think that's something to emphasize. We have a lot of people mm-hmm. working in a very small space. Yes. Yeah, both live and dead people. We have a lot of live, <laughs> a lot of dead people. And, and you're right. It can be confusing if someone is uh, moving tray A and yeah. person B doesn't necessarily know that at that time. Well, because we both do the evisceration, like we help. We get the post room or the autopsy suite. We get it set up. We move the organs. And then we're also the cleanup afterwards. But then after we get the post rooms uh, taken care of. We also have to go into releasing for funeral homes and things like that to pick up. So when funeral homes do show up, they all show up at the same time. So it's very common for us to have, you know, two or three funeral homes asking for, you know, three to four bodies total and then have our transport service show up and have to drop off somebody. And we only have two garage doors for everyone to maneuver in and out of. We have people coming and going and still needing to get into the cooler. So, Or we could have just another, nobody show up. We could have no funeral homes and no one coming to be dropped off. It's You never know what's gonna, what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like all the cases we get, you, you can't predict what no. you're 
what your day will be like. I mean, there's a set order and flow of the day, but you have to be able to roll with the changes that you see all the time. You've been with us for a little while. What are, in your mind, what are some of the uh, the highlights of what you do? I uh, am not afraid to admit that I am a nosy person. And so... Uh, I don't want to say exciting, but it's something I very much enjoy and being able to do all those things. And I like the challenging cases. You know, we do, we do have homicides that come through here and that's, you know, having that challenge of the extra step, what's extra needed. You know, I enjoy that. Um, mm-hmm. I would definitely consider that, you know, a highlight. You know, you can see things that in a textbook, it's got the pretty colors of like the purple and the yellow and it's very clean and that's not how it's like in the real world and so being able to see what it actually looks like and then being able to hold it and then have you know the doctors or the pathology assistants you know you know explain to us and be able to see these things you know it's really cool like I found um, one of the cases had an aneurysm that I kid you not was like the size of a football like it was huge on his uh, on his aorta Mm -hmm. you know you hear about these you can read it in a textbook but you don't get to like physically see this huge mass of blood Mm -hmm. i don't know if i would call it nosiness (laughs) i I think it's just that curiosity yeah Yeah. that scientific endeavor that you want to learn more Mm -hmm. and i think we all have that in us Uh, you know some people to a greater degree than others but that's just a function of what it is that we do we we want to learn a little bit more yeah so I think that's actually one of the important skills of being a successful autopsy technician. It's not just doing the work. It, mm-hmm. You have to have that drive to, to do more, to learn more. And I think it helps you do your job. Yeah, and I think what's nice here is it's not the cookie cutter. It's not the same thing every day. Everything is going to be different. And like I said, I like that challenge. I don't want the desk job of the same thing every single day. You know, I want to have to think on my feet and adjust and because having something new mm-hmm. is good for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Without a doubt, if we did not have the team that we did, it would not work uh, quite, quite as well, nearly as well, <laughs> for sure. Any last words for our listeners? I mean, it's a great job if you don't want to work at a desk. And it is challenging, and it's new every day. So that's my favorite part. Yeah. Well, thank you, Elise, for mm-hmm. coming on. All right. Very welcome. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.